Hello, and welcome to NANCAST. I'm Jill, your host. As NICU nurses, we are all aware of the wide differences of practice in NICUs across the globe. However, we all share the common goal of providing the highest quality of care to promote the best outcomes for our tiny patients and their families. Each NICU is facing challenges in meeting those goals, and as nurses, we must broaden our perspectives to address these challenges. By sharing our solutions to these challenges, NICU nurses can learn from one another to ultimately improve outcomes. To help promote the globalization of NICU nursing and provide opportunities for cross-cultural sharing of experience and expertise, NAN has led a delegation trip to the United Arab Emirates for a high-level, in-depth international exchange. To highlight both the similarities and differences in practice of NICU nursing in the UAE, as well as integrating cultural norms and values among the care of the babies and their families, I am joined with three NAN members who were on this delegation. Gail Bagwell, former NAN president who led the delegation to the UAE, along with Kelly Thompson and Adrian Isaacs. Let's get right into it. I'm so excited to talk to all of you today about your experience and perspectives on global approaches to NICU care practices in the UAE. But first, I think to really understand um, and gain a better focus on care practices in the UAE, it would be really helpful if you could tell us a little bit more about their cultural practices and their perspectives on healthcare. The um, culture is much different, obviously, than it is here in the United States. Um, UAE is just a relatively newer country um, back in the um, late 60s, early 70s, when they actually became a country and got out from underneath the rule of the British. And they're made up of seven emirates. And even though they have a president, it is not a true democracy. Um, the president is the king of the largest, um, richest um Emirates, which is Abu Dhabi. Um, the prime minister is the second largest, richest um, Emirates, which would be Dubai. And then there's other lesser roles for the other five Emirates or states of um, the UAE. And, you know, they were all tribes at one time and very nomadic. And so I think that also affects some of their culture. I found it interesting that a large portion of the um, healthcare providers actually were not native UAE Emiratis, that a lot of the nurses are come in from Pakistan and India, the Philippines, Europe, and Britain. Um, I don't remember them saying anything about too many Americans being there working in their healthcare system. Um, but the um, native Emiratis, the ones that we met, we're in higher up positions versus being at the bedside staff nurse um, position. And when we met with them at the um, health, um, like the department, what we would consider to be the Department of Health in the United States, um, they actually um, gave us a great video of a commercial where they're looking to encourage Native Emiratis to actually become healthcare providers um, more than just a doctor, but looking at nursing specifically, both men and women. Um, and with us being neonatal, we saw a lot of the OB units, and there are no men allowed on the obstetrical units 
because of the Islamic culture. One of the other things that was big over there is they want to be the best of the best of the best at everything. And their goal is to be the best at everything by their centennial, which would be 2071. So right now they have currently the biggest skyscraper out there. Um, They want to have the best healthcare available out. So like I said, they are trying to become the best of the best um, of everything. And if they want to be the best of the best and of healthcare, especially, why do you think there's a lack of actual native UAE women or men that want to become nurses? Like, did they talk about that or did they allude to is just is being a nurse in their eyes not as successful as a physician or I would guess that there's some of that I they never came out and said that Jill but I also think the fact that the each native Emiratis they're like given a house they have a they they get a salary um that it's totally different you know the government gives them some money all the time. So is there a need to work? And I don't know that answer. I don't know if Adrian and um, Kelly have any insight, uh, better insight after being there with me. Um, Because, you know, sometimes we miss things. So many conversations go on at one time. Um, So, yeah, I I think that it's probably, my guess is that it probably is, has something to do with, you know, it's more prestigious to be a physician than it is to be a nurse. One thing I found interesting, though, is that we, you know, are always hearing stories about the oppression of women um, in Arab countries. And in the UAE, the women we spoke to were all hospital and government leaders. Like, these women were the CNOs and, um, you know, directors of medical programs and stuff like that at the hospital. And so it's not, and so many women were physicians. There were so many women physicians that I think they really broke that stereotype that people typically see and think of when they think of um, the UAE and other Arab countries. That's so interesting. That probably changed your perception of the UAE, because I would have thought, you know, that the women wouldn't be as involved and in professional roles and look at them, you know, being the director of a hospital. Um, so it's, you know, it's great that we go out and experience other cultures and bring all of that information in to break, like you said, break those stereotypes and those um, perceptions that we have of um, the UAE and other Arab countries. Yeah. And, you know, I remember friends saying, I would never go to a country that forces me to wear, you know, cover my face, cover my head. And I'm like, they don't, you know, and the Muslim women do cover themselves, but they cover themselves because that's their religion. You know, it's no more than the, um, some of the other cultures around the world where the women cover their hair and stuff, and it's only to be seen by their husband, um, that they don't show that to other, um, people. So, you know, it's totally different than what we have the impression of here in the United States. And a lot of the women had designer shoes and dresses underneath their robes that covered their everyday clothes. So the scene from the movie Sex in the City is real. Like they really did. They yeah. Really yeah. Did. What was, yeah. what I would say is one thing where we did have to cover and be very, um, 
modest was when we went to um, the biggest uh, mosque. And you you have to be respectful. Like if you go to any other Asian country and you're going to the Buddhist and Hindu temples, you also have to be respectful of the wishes um, of those cultures. And so you're not constantly having to cover your hair and your shoulders. It's just when you're going to those no. um, those reverent places. Well, and I remember being in Italy six, seven years ago, and a young girl on our tour group, we were getting ready to go into the Vatican and the Sistine Chapel in St. Peter's, and she had on short shorts and a tank top, and they're like, no, you're not going in like that, and she had to buy a scarf to wrap around her waist and something over her shoulders just because our tour guide, you know, it was not being respectful, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's the Catholic religion, you know, that they didn't want you looking disrespectful. Right. And then the other thing that surprised me, because going over, I had a lot of people like, please be careful, make sure, you know, it's dangerous over there. You know, if you're out, you know, just be careful. I felt very safe when we were out and about and stuff. Like I never felt any kind of threatened or looked at differently or anything like that. Like going out at night, um, just being out, like I felt safe there. I, I did too. It was, I felt safer then than I do here at home some days. You know, and with the uh, Nan provided delegation, um, you know, they've obviously are providing you with guides and you're with people that can show you around and make sure that you, you know, get a full experience, not only of the healthcare system, but also of the culture. Right. We, we did. And but, you know, to the point of being safe, there were evenings where we broke away like to go to the top of Burj Khalifa, the tallest building in the world. There was a group of us that did that while other ones went back to the hotel. And another night um, there was a picture on the NAN media that I think Kelly, you, you took it of us up at that um, where it was all blue and that nightclub at the top of one of those towers in um, Abu Dhabi. And, you know, we were walking the streets at like 11, 12 o'clock at night and nobody bothered us. You couldn't do that in a big city in the United States. So you, Gail, mentioned a little bit about how that there is a lack of nursing and they're working on improving uh, the nursing body. Um, How are they doing that? What's their nursing education system like and their academics around nursing and advanced practice nursing? I can talk. I'll I'll talk a little bit about just nursing in general. And then Adrian and um, Kelly can talk about the lack of APRNs, um, but they used to be mostly diploma-based um, school schools, and they closed all of those back in 2011, and they've switched now to totally BSN programs, um, and they said in 2017, all nurses have to be entry-level, um, and the, for those with diplomas, they do have a bridge program for them, um, and the bridge program is about two to two and a half years um, and they do get scholarship and hospital support to go back to get their BSNs. Um, and basically, um, you have to have your BSN to go on and do any postgraduates. And they have relationships with um, England, Great Britain, and um, professors are there to help educate the nurses. They are working on some post-bachelor's, master's programs, and um they work with a hospital in Ireland um, to do that. And Kelly or Adrian, you want to talk about 
their um, other, like the midwife program and other things they're trying to develop. Yeah. So currently they have the nursing programs there and then they have a midwife program there. They don't have any APR, APRN, um, CNS um, education available. Um, so if you wanted to go on for your nurse practitioner or CNS, they don't have that available right now. They don't have the positions in the hospitals. They don't have nurse practitioners in the hospitals. They don't have CNSs. They do great education in the hospital, but they don't have that CNS in there doing it. Um, but like I said, they have the midwife program. So there is hope in the future that since they've got that going, that hopefully they would be able to incorporate um, the nurse practitioner CNS. Um, they do a study of the pediatric nursing, like kind of specialty. They train them pediatric, which entails the NICU and stuff like that. So they do have where they get some specialized training if they're interested in that field. That the bedside nurse that gets the special training? Yes. And so they're working on, their goal is to have advanced practice nurses, but this is where they're starting to um, develop specialized nurses. I believe they have a cardiology program. Um, and like Kelly said, pediatrics program, um, just to get these nurses more experience. Um, and so they can be like the, the go-to people or the masters uh, in those units. And then ultimately they are working towards having advanced practice nurses, but this is kind of their jump off point for education, for, um, bringing more specialized, um, education to their bedside nurses. That's excellent. I mean, that's a great way to get people to feel more empowered about the specialty that they're going in. Um, and it, and it really helps with education of the, of the other nurses that are working there that might not have that experience in, um, the bedside of that specialty. Like we all know we have a lot of new grads in the NICU and it's really hard because they don't have much exposure to NICU nursing in undergrad program at all. Yeah. And I think it's the same there. They don't have a lot of NICU exposure in their undergrad programs. And the thing that um, they don't have over there that we have over here is certification. Nobody is certified. So they're still working on, hopefully, um, Robin Bissinger was with us. And so she was hoping that maybe she could get them interested in um, sort of getting the nurses certified. And that would probably help them you know, with their education purposes, like maybe they'll learn how to use the equipment they have, maybe bring in a little bit of developmental care for all those babies too. So that they do have like for the, um, native Emiratis, they have to, um, have proficiency in English because, uh, but they also have to know their own language. Um, but the English is very important because classes are taught in English but they need to be able to communicate with their native Emiratis that don't all speak English as well as the younger generation does because English is part of their education now um, being a global uh, country uh, with a global society. Um, and that it's not an automatic in, they really have to like be interviewed and during the interviews, they're assessing that both their cognitive and non-cognitive abilities, which I'm not exactly sure how they do that, um, but they 
that's they tell us that's what they do. Um, and they have to have certain grade point average to get in. So, so it seems like a very rigorous program. Mm-hmm. Again, it goes along with being the best, right? And having the best, which I think when I like talking about the hospitals, you see that in the hospitals, they literally have all of the equipment. They have some equipment that we don't even have in my units in Denver, you know? And so it's another way that they're showing that they want to be the best. I know. I was looking at the pictures that Kelly posted on Instagram of your travels and I was trying to like focus in on some of the equipment that they had. And I was like, what is that? Like, I don't even know. And I, I work in a very big hospital in Philadelphia and I didn't even see, I don't even know what that piece of equipment was. And it was high tech. It wasn't like an archaic machine. It was very high tech. So. Well, that Billy right. Rubin thing I'd never seen before, yep. Kelly. That's what I mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sort of like, it kind of reminds me of an iron long, but you put the baby in there and it's like they're at 360 exposure to the light. And it's like, whoa. Amazing. You know? Yeah. And that's probably against what people people's perception is probably that they might not have the best equipment and that they are using older models of what we're using, but that's totally the opposite. So, and I think that was awesome that Kelly posted those videos and those pictures. So everybody can get, you know, a a glimpse into what the NICU life is there. I, I would say, and I think Adrian and Kelly probably would agree with me, is that even though they might have the best equipment, they didn't. They they were lacking nursing skills. There, there's a would be a great opportunity if Nan could somehow figure out a way to partner with them. Um, their developmental care was almost not. It was very stressful. Um, Thermoregu, <laughs> yes, <laughs> it was very for, stressful for us. It was very stressful nurses. for us and, and the babies. <laughs> And during this uh, delegation trip, like they didn't ask for any of your um, input as like Americans coming in and what what works for you. Um, what are the challenges that you? Nothing like that. No, but what was interesting is they were so um, eager to show us their QI projects. Every place we went, they made sure to show us their QI boards and what their project, what projects they were working on. And you know, they had several Q, QI boards throughout the hospitals in in the different units. And so they were very eager to show us what we were doing, what they were doing for um, to improve patient care. And they very frequently referenced, "Oh, we're looking at this literature. We're looking at this literature. We read this journal in pediatrics." And so you know, they're referencing literature from all over the world, from other developed countries to base their their patient care off of. So they're very focused on, on QI, which is yes. really interesting. So they have the greatest equipment, but and they can't just execute it, um, you know, the way that they want to because they mm-hmm. lack the skills mm-hmm. of the nurses. You know, and I, I, th- I said this on the trip, and I even, I think I said it during the conference, in a way, sometimes I felt that we were the joint commission. And <laughs> this is how we are when we, um, you know, like when joint commission comes to our hospitals, how, you know, it's like we show them everything we're doing and, and like everybody's on their best yep. behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And a, 
and I think it was the first hospital, Kelly, what the, and Adrian, where didn't they, the nurses talk about something about shift length and stuff. And then we went to the health services and they were like, oh no, that's not true. Um, so about what they had told us. It was like the shift length and them doing like 16, eight hour shifts in a row or 16, 12 hour shifts in a row or something like that. Something, mm -hmm. something it crazy something like, like that. that. Mm -hmm. You're right. It is just like having. <laughs> mm -hmm. Exactly. And they want to put a good face forward. And I think yeah, yeah. if if we could have done anything different, I think it would have been nicer if there could have been more, you know, them saying, you know, we're doing this. What are your recommendations? You know, setting up like, a, let's do some consulting while we're yeah, there. It, yeah, there was no collaborating. It was more yes, like no exactly. collaborating, no I consulting. Mean, yeah. And yeah. I think they could have benefited from it. Because we, yeah. I learned a lot. I, you know, I'm like, it'd been nice if they could have said, well, we learned a lot by them being here, you know? Yeah. They seem modernized in a lot of ways, but not in others where they could probably really have benefited by our experience, especially if they're into QI initiatives and, you know, what's the perspective that you've gained on the QI that you've done in America with the equipment that you have, or I don't know, it could have been a, a really good collaboration for, for both. I think a lot of people, when they're, when they hear about, oh, Nan's doing a delegation, it's important that we talked about that it's not going there to work. Um, it's, you know, it's going there to learn about their culture and how their cultural practices affect healthcare and, and vice versa. But it would be nice if you had that element of, of a collaboration of, you know, how, how, how can we both improve our outcomes? What works? What doesn't? Yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, I know at the conference some people asked about, you know, their impression was we went there and actually did stuff like helped. You know, like you would a mission trip, you know, when people have gone to Haiti or like when I went down to Guyana to set up a NICU, you know, you were actually doing hands-on teaching, caring for those little babies. And that's not what these trips are about at all. It's really about learning about the cultures um, and, you know, enlightening ourselves and seeing how things can be done differently um, in other parts of the world and still have good outcomes because they do have good outcomes, were there any particular practices that you saw while you were there or heard about that you thought, oh, that that could be applicable to us in the U.S. or we could implement that here? I don't think I saw any particular practices that would change our practice over here. But one thing I did find interesting over there was with their religion and their culture, um, a lot of times breastfeeding um, babies getting breast milk over there cannot normally get a donor human milk of any sort because of what's called like sibling milk. And that's when donor milk or another breast milk is given to their baby. That's not their own mother's. If they were to get it from someone that they know down the line, they could never marry that person's sibling. Cause it's a sibling. Um, they're technically considered siblings if they're receiving breast milk from another mom. However, prolacta is able to get them this donor human milk 
Um, and they provide information to these moms saying this is not likely ever going to happen. Um, we're getting it from all these different donors, the likelihood of them ending up meeting their significant other, marrying them and them being milk siblings is unlikely. So they do use donor human milk, which was very interesting. You know, back to breastfeeding. Everywhere in the hospital, just not the mother woman's um, unit, the there was signs for breastfeeding, elevator doors, you know, hallways, everything mm-hmm. talked about Everywhere. breastfeeding and um, the importance of breastfeeding. They had that QR code that you could scan for the moms that were walking in the hallways to help support them breastfeeding that had lactation available so they could answer questions. They could post their questions to this QR code. And it was kind of like their own little personal chat, like group of, you know, these special moms who are, you know, breastfeeding and any questions and stuff they had, they could just go onto this QR code and get their answers. So they seem to have a lot of support for the moms there in the hospital too. And and families are very supportive. Um, So like, the father can't be there for the delivery or in the unit, but the mothers, the aunts, the um, ex- female family, extended female family members are there supporting the mother in most cases. And, and the men sit in a wooden chair outside the unit while their baby's being born. And one of our, um, we had a young male nurse with us and he could not even go on inside the OB units to, to see the units. He had to stay out because he was a man. But they make it work. It seems like they're pretty efficient in that, in that regards. Yeah, they're definitely, they make it, they, because it's their culture and they know how to make it work. And, and so for, you know, for us, like now, if we have a Islamic mom, you know, there's things for us to think about in our own hospital systems about how can we make this more comfortable for that Islamic mom who is not used to having male physicians and, you know, and I don't work um, with obstetric colleagues anymore, but, you know, it'd be an interesting thing to have that conversation with them because so many of them are large practices with a combination of men and women in it. And what happens if you go into labor and you have a very strict Islamic woman and now she has to have a man deliver her. And that is just very hard on them. I've never, and it doesn't mean it doesn't exist in the United States, but you know, they, they have just, in one of the hospitals, it was just women and children and it was just all women's ER. It was a all woman's ER. Oh, wow. um, so women came in and while we were downstairs that day, Kelly and Rachel and I, and I was I there. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, we're all there and a woman comes in, you know, they pulled it up in the road up into the entrance in the car and she's in full labor. And so they brought her in and they were, they, they started delivering her down in that emergency room and the neonatologist came down and he was a male. And so he can't really be in the room. So they had the ER set up so that there was private area for the mom to deliver in and then a separate area, same room that the baby was, you know, moved over to. So like in our units, delivery units, the beds are pretty close to the mom's bed and we see everything when we're in there. And um, here it was like, nope, there was a big curtain that separated the people that were going to resuscitate the baby from the people who were delivering the baby from the mom. And the other interesting at that hospital, I remember them telling us is, remember we were asking about going car seat test and their babies. And they 
don't do car seat tests. A lot of the babies don't go home in car seats. It's not a thing. They go home on mom's lap. There's no kind of weight requirement to go home or kind of gestational age. So nope, you know, car seats weren't a big thing out that way at that hospital. Yeah, but the car seat thing was. But, you know, even now the car seat test now in the um, AAP saying probably don't need to be doing it. <laughs> the studies that came out recently that it really doesn't show a benefit. So That's interesting. Yeah. So maybe they're ahead of the game. They could be. They're, they're so far <laughs> behind that they're ahead now. Because <laughs> what goes around comes around, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know what I want to talk about that you guys mentioned on the call, which I thought was so interesting about the hospitals being so concerned about the nurses' happiness? I thought that was really interesting, and I think it's very um, timely for uh, you know the U.S. nurses being burnt out. I just thought that was like interesting because I I don't think that's something that we care about satisfaction in the U.S. and not you know happiness. No, and, and there's a difference between happiness and satisfaction. You know, they want you to be more than satisfied. They want you to be happy with them. And, and it's not only the staff, it is the yeah. customer. It's not satisfaction, it is happiness. Um, they had not like where you would go like to, you know, complain or if you had any kind of questions, concerns, like when you're at the hospital, it was a um, happiness center. You know, they wanted to... However, they can make not only their patients, their family, the staff, how they can improve, you know, their happiness. And then when we were actually at the health department, you know, they are trying to make these nurses happy. And during COVID, they considered them heroes and um, they um, gave them, if they were trying to become citizens, um, normally it takes, I think it was 30 years, Gail, to become a citizen. 30, 30, 32, something. It's, it's obnoxious. It's like, so they reduced it to, I think it was like 10 years for these nurses. Um, again, cause they want to, you know, show them their gratitude for everything that they did during COVID and stuff. Um, again, nurses, if you're of their, you know, from the UAE going to nursing, you know, you do get the perks of the housing, you get the perks of, you know, school tuition paid. Um, they do get paid, uh, you know, was it weekly or monthly? I know they got paid a good salary. Yeah. It was um, weekly. weekly. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Weekly. And they said that the salary, not all are hourly and the entry level was 21,000. The $24,000 um, AE, UAE money, which is an AED, and that is $54.55 a month in US dollars. So, yeah. that, that for an entry level BSN nurse, $5,400, almost $5,500 a month is good money. I know the delegation isn't all focused on just the hospital and the education and the nursing, but what other fun activities did you guys do while in the UAE? Um, on your downtime? There wasn't really a lot of downtime. We were very busy. Our days would sometimes be five, six in the morning till 10 o'clock at night, just doing, you know, visiting the hospitals um, and then going out to dinner with the group, like with planned events. And so we didn't have a lot of downtime. It was rare. 
um, if we did. Usually it was just like getting up, doing the day, going back to the hotel, going to sleep, and doing it all over again <laughs> the next day. <laughs> I know I brought my swimsuit, but I didn't use it. <laughs> right, because, you know, the first hotel had a beach. Kelly and I did, because we got there early on Saturday, go over there, but it wasn't exactly a very warm day, so we really didn't get in the water. Um, but we got to sit out on the beach um, and look at the Persian Gulf which I believe are Arabic Sea, one of the two, what, what, the body of water that Abu Dhabi's on. Um, but yeah, it, they were very long days, but it always, no matter when we got back, it always seemed like we had a little bit of time that we'd at least talk in the hotel bar for a little bit about things that we had seen or done, impressions, just to um, unwind. Because when you're oh, going yeah. all day, just to go up to your room and try to go to bed, no. it doesn't work for most no. of us. Um, we, they would take us to, um, different touristy attractions. Um, we went to the great frame. Um, we went to the largest, um, temple there. Um, so they would take us to all the different, you know, places and stuff. And I think most of those were included in the cost that you pay. Um, if you wanted to do some extra stuff, um, they would get you lined up and get you tickets for it. And that was just something you paid out of pocket. So, you know, make sure if you want to do some extra stuff, you know, to bring some extra money with you. Um, but yeah, you're going all day morning tonight. You're, you know, not all the hospitals are right by where you're staying. So I feel like the one hospital we went to was about an hour drive just there in the morning. So that's why we had to get up early and start the day so early. I think the other thing that we didn't mention is that there is, at least on UAE, and I'm assuming it's going to be the same with Fiji, there was time to shop. Oh, that's and, important. you know, yep. we all uh -huh. like to shop. And as far as meals go, it they'll tell you, the delegation tells you what meals are provided. I would say about 85% of the meals were provided. It was usually lunches that were not. But even though lunches weren't provided through the delegation, when we would go visit the the sites, the hospitals, or the the um Ministry of Health, they provided meals for us. So there were very few meals that we had to pay for on our own um, during that time. So that was nice too. That's something you can consider that you don't need a ton of extra money to bring for extra meals. And it was nice that they were organized and that for the most part, we ate together and got to fellowship and get to know each other. Yeah, because a lot of people, I know myself, I would be a little bit hesitant about going on this long journey by myself. And, you know, but to know that you all stuck together as a group and really got to know each other after these long days, that's, you know, would make people feel more comfortable that it's more of a, you know, a team effort. You don't need to necessarily go with somebody. Right. And so they set you up on a WhatsApp. And so we all got connected kind of ahead of time. And people are still using, the not quite as much recently, but up through October, beginning of November, there was almost once a week, um, somebody putting something on WhatsApp to the group. So, you know, in that week, we really did bond. And, you know, Kelly and Adrian, you guys ended up rooming because I think one the thing to talk about is your the hotel room situation, that you can either be a single person or you can roll the dice and um, have a roommate. And Kelly and I, from my impression, Kelly and Adrian hit the jackpot on that <laughs> yeah. one versus some other people, um, you know, of being paired. You know, 
paired together to, and shared a room at all the different hotels. It's a little bit cheaper if you have a roommate. And before we went, me and Adrian knew we were going to be like, they, it's not like we showed up <laughs> to Abu Dhabi. I walked into my room and I was like, I don't know who I'm rooming with. Whoever pops through this door. Like they did say like a few weeks before, like, okay, you're going to be rooming with this person. So then we were able to connect through WhatsApp app and kind of introduce our mm-hmm. each other and stuff and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So it's not like you went in blind if you are rooming with someone you don't know. So you can introduce and kind of. I was going to say, if you're involved in the NAN community, like it's likely that I would say for the most part, I at least knew names of most or a lot of the people who were on the trip. And so if you're part of the NAN community in general, you might recognize a name or like Kelly and I knew, or I knew who Kelly was. We just didn't know each other. So, um, you, you'll probably, there's probably going to be some sort of familiarity with a, at least a few people on the trip. Right. And ahead of time, they all, you also kind of know when everybody's arriving and what flights they're on. So I know a couple of people in the group ended up um, flying um, from DC to Abu Dhabi or Dubai. I don't know which city they flew into, but they kind of met each other at the gate at the airport in DC at um, Dallas. And, you know, then had, somebody to chat with on the long plane flight, you know, they weren't seated next to each other, but they could get up and go walk and get to know, and at the gate, you know, and then carpool to the hotel together. Something else that I feel like is important to touch on too, is that the um, organization that um, arranges this cultural vistas, we actually met with them beforehand. And so they were able to tell us, um, expectations, cultural expectations, what we could wear. And I know Fiji is not going to be quite as strict as going to the UAE, but it was, it, I, it helped me feel more comfortable as to know what to expect. And again, it gave us an opportunity to see, see people who got on the call or the meeting. It gave us an opportunity to interact with the, the people who are going to be on the trip. So I think if that's something that's fearful to you, just know that they're going to prepare you as well as they can um, before before the trip with everything you need to know. It was a great experience, um, and I'm glad I did it. So thanks, everybody. I am so excited to hear what is in store for our Fiji delegation coming up. Thank you, ladies, for telling us about your experience and how enriching it was to you and how it's going to affect your perspective of the UAE and their healthcare system. Make sure you never miss an episode of NANCAST by subscribing now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks for your support and letting us into your ears. Have a great day. 